love it. Well, glad to be here with you. Uh, glad to see your lovely faces. Uh, if you're new to Crosspoint, back in January, we kicked off a year-long series on the Gospel of Mark. And just last Sunday, we made it to Mark chapter 6. So if you have a Bible with you or some type of device with a Bible app, grab those things and let's go there together. Mark chapter 6. Well, the title of today's message is this, The Inevitability of Rejection. I still remember my first taste of rejection. I was in the third grade and her name was Nikki. Yeah, Nikki was the cousin of one of my best buddies in school. And so I met Nikki at his house and we hung out and we became boyfriend and girlfriend. And I thought everything was going all right until I got that letter that every third grader dreads receiving, informing me that my relationship status with Nikki had changed. Uh, I read that she no longer wanted to be in an awkward, distant elementary school kind of relationship with me. And to be honest, it kind of stung, you know, for the first time in my life, I experienced that feeling of not being wanted. Now, look, I know my lame childish story might come off as making light of this topic. And so why don't we just right out of the gate, get really honest and serious if we can. Listen, wouldn't you agree that we all in some way have tasted and felt the sting of rejection? Yeah. I mean, I think some of us in the room have probably been rejected in a relationship much more serious than the one I described. Others have probably been rejected from a job or a potential job opportunity. Some of us may have been rejected from a team we really wanted to be a part of. Like I got a good friend who tried out for our school basketball team in middle and high school and got cut five years in a row. You know, they say persistence pays off, but his didn't. Uh, it just led to rejection year after year. Now, here's the point I'm making, and you know this because you're all smart people, but at a very, very basic level, our shared life experiences teach us that rejection is inevitable. And not only is it inevitable, it's painful. And that's what makes today's message so tough. You see, those same things are true when it comes to following Jesus. We're going to see this in our passage in just a moment, but I'll go ahead and let you know where we're going right out of the gate today. Look, I want you to know that if your goal in life is to follow Jesus faithfully, at some point you will experience rejection from the world. And in certain cases, that rejection could be far more painful than you ever expected. And so now that we're all encouraged and excited about being at church today... Why don't we dive in and get to work? All right, you ready? Mark chapter 6, we'll pick up and start reading in verse 7. Here's what it says. And he, that's Jesus, called the 12, those are the disciples, and he began to send them out two by two, and he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. And so they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons uh, and anointed with oil many who were sick, and they healed them. Now, we'll stop there and talk, all right? Uh, in these few verses, what we see is the fulfillment of a commissioning that took place back in Mark chapter 3. Uh, in verses 14 and 15 of that chapter, we're told that Jesus appointed 12 men, whom he also called apostles, that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to cast out demons. Well, up to this point, they had been with him and they had watched him and they had learned from them. And, uh, and now it was time for them to be sent out on mission in the world as an extension of his ministry to do the very things that he had been doing. 
And so as we just read, Jesus called these guys together. He gave them his authority, and then he sent them out into the world two by two. Now, going out two by two, this was a customary practice for the Jewish people during this time, both for legal and practical reasons. On the legal side, we see the importance of credibility, okay? So for example, in this Jewish culture, if criminal charges were brought against a person, there had to be at least two people who witnessed the crime take place for that person to be convicted and punished. Because the, uh, the thinking was, you know, if, if there are multiple witnesses, obviously the charges must be true. But if only one person brought charges, they could very well be lying. And so you have to understand, the disciples going out two by two, it actually helped to establish the truthfulness of this message, message excuse me, they shared about Jesus. But then on the practical side, we see the importance of teamwork, And don't miss this. Look, we're reminded here that Christianity is a team sport. Are you with me? Like contrary to what some people think and believe, uh, you and I cannot follow Jesus faithfully or live on mission out in the world in isolation, which means we can't ever be those people whose mindset is, well, you know, like Jesus and he's all right, but I just don't think I need the church. You know, I'll do church by myself on my couch on Sundays. While that might be convenient, it's not Christianity. Christianity declares that you and I need each other in the same way the disciples needed each other as Jesus sent them out into the world. Now, before sending them out, Mark tells us that Jesus gave these guys some very simple yet seemingly impractical instructions. And so if you're somebody in the room today who lives in the world of practicalities, you know, you love all those things that make life easier, you're going to hate this, okay? Jesus looks at the 12 and he says, "Uh, I want you to go out there, but don't take anything with you. Don't take any food. Don't take any bags for provisions or supplies. Don't take any money. Don't even take an extra tunic. This extra tunic that Jesus referenced, it was worn by the Jewish people as an outer garment, much like you and I would wear a coat or a jacket. And at night, they would actually use it as a blanket to keep warm. Jesus says, don't take any of that stuff. All you can take is a staff and some sandals. And when you enter the towns that you're going to visit, find a family there who will receive you into their home as guests and stay in their home for as long as you're in that town. Now, can we just be honest? That's insane, isn't it? I mean, this would be like your boss coming to you this week at work and going, hey, I want to send you on a business trip out of town, but the only catch is you can't take anything with you. Leave your suitcase, leave your wallet at home. Uh, By the way, we didn't book you a hotel room, so when you get to the city, just knock on some doors and find someone who will take you in and feed you for the week. That's just crazy, right? And you'd probably quit that job before going on this trip. But that's exactly what Jesus was asking his disciples to do, which begs the question, why? Why would Jesus send his 12 guys into the world on mission while instructing them to take nothing? Well, the answer boils down to two big issues, and they're these, urgency and trust, urgency and trust. First, Jesus wanted his disciples to understand the urgency of their mission. And he tried to get them to see it by forcing them to travel lightly. You know, it's kind of one of those moments of, hey, uh, you're not going to have much, so you better hurry up. Secondly, Jesus wanted these guys to trust God entirely for the provision they needed. Now, in light of this, I want to stop and talk about us for just a moment. Because these two issues, that they uncover and reveal for us some important principles that still apply to us today. And the principles are these. If you take a note, you can write this down. But number one, living on mission is an urgent matter. And then number two, living on mission requires us to trust God for provision. 
And so let me just ask some questions if I can. All right, first, do you see the mission of Jesus as an urgent matter? Do you recognize, if you know Christ as Savior and Lord, that he has sent you into the world as an extension of his ministry? Like, do you understand that he's given you his authority by placing his spirit, the very spirit of God, inside of your body? That he's called you to go into the world declaring the good news of who he is and what he's done for sinful people while demonstrating through your life what he's capable of. Like, do you see that mission as urgent in light of the fact that our world is filled with people that desperately need to see, one, that Christianity works, and two, hear that Jesus saves? And then next, let me ask you this. As you live for that mission, do you really trust God to provide for you along the way? This is a huge, huge question, and here's why. Because at times, God is going to ask you to give things for the mission that you don't want to give. And he's going to ask you to go places for the mission that you don't want to go. And he's going to ask you to sacrifice things for the mission that you don't want to sacrifice. And I'm telling you, if you're one of those people in the room who who look at yourself as your own provider and you don't trust God as your ultimate provider, when that happens, here's what you'll do. You ready? You'll get out your calendar, right? And you'll look through it and you'll think about how busy you are. And you'll look at your budget and your bank account and you'll look through it and think about how broke you are. And then all of a sudden, you're talking yourself out of that thing that God has asked you to do. My prayer is this. My prayer is that we would understand today at a heart level what Jesus was trying to get his disciples to understand in this moment, which again is this, that as we live urgently in the world on mission to make him known to people who desperately need to know him, that we can trust entirely in God's provision. Look, that's a principle that goes back to a promise Jesus made in Matthew 6, 33. Some of you, you you might know this promise. It's where Jesus says, hey, if you'll seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, all these things, these worldly provisions that so many people worry about, God will add all those things to you. In other words, Jesus was teaching there, if you'll make God's kingdom your priority, God will make your kingdom his. Which, look at me, that's not a promise to suggest that God's always going to give you everything you want, because he's not. All right, straight up, just being honest with you. It is a promise to suggest that you can always expect God to give you everything you need. But at the same time, at the same time, Jesus says, if you want to live on mission, you also have to expect rejection. Because as we've already established, rejection is inevitable for faithful followers of Jesus. And this is basically what he tells his disciples in verses 10 and 11. He says to them, when you're out there, expect both hospitality and hostility. Expect to make both friends and enemies. Know that some people are going to receive you, but other people are going to reject you. And I love this because it's still so helpful for us today. Uh, Jesus then goes on to give his guys instructions on how to respond to rejection when it comes. And here's what he says. He says, look, when you enter a town and they don't listen to you, they don't receive you, shake the dust off of your feet as a testimony against them. Now, I know that's kind of weird for us. Like, we have no idea what Jesus is talking about in our culture because nobody does that. But back then, it made a lot of sense. You see, it was customary for devout Jews during this time to shake the dust off of their sandals and clothing after being in Gentile territory. And they did it for a couple reasons. One, they didn't want to defile the holy land of Israel. In their minds, they saw it as defiling the land if they brought Gentile dust back with them. But number two, it was symbolic. They did it to symbolize their disassociation with that place they had been. 
And so again, for these guys to shake the dust off their feet, very symbolic in nature, Jesus was instructing them to do it as a testimony against the people for two reasons. One, so that the people who rejected their message would understand that they were acting like pagans in doing so. And number two, that they would see that in sharing the message, the disciples had fulfilled their responsibility and what they now did with the news they heard, well, it was between them and God. Here's why I love that, and here's why I think this is so helpful for us today. It reminds us that as we're out in the world on mission, that our job is proclamation and demonstration. Their job, and by their, I mean people out in the world who need Jesus, their job is reception or rejection, and then God's job is to judge accordingly. So let me just make this really simple and practical, okay? Uh, Your only job as a follower of Jesus Christ is to love people really, really well by proclaiming the good news of who he is and demonstrating through the way you live your life how that good news has radically changed you. People who hear that good news then have to decide whether or not they're going to receive it or reject it. Uh, If they receive it, it leads to salvation. If they reject it, it leads to damnation. But that's all in God's hand because judgment belongs to him and him alone. Now, can we just agree that takes the pressure off, doesn't it? And that's good news for us because I think oftentimes we as people put way too much pressure on ourselves. We'll go out into the world believing that it's our job to change hearts that it's our job to convince people intellectually that this news we're sharing about Jesus is true. And so when hearts and minds don't change, we tend to take rejection much more personally than we should. We have to remember today that it's not our job to change hearts or minds. That's the Holy Spirit's job. Our only job is proclamation and demonstration. You see, we're just messengers. All we do is deliver mail, if you will, right? We show up and we share it. We're not responsible for whether or not people open it or read it or do anything with it. We just deliver it. They have to decide what to do with it. And then God is responsible for the rest. And please hear me. Remembering that is what allows you as a follower of Jesus Christ to shake the dust off and to keep living on mission even in spite of rejection. Now, I want you to go back to the passage with me. Because in the next set of verses, Mark breaks from this story about Jesus sending out the 12, and he tells a story about a particular instance of rejection. And just a heads up, it's pretty extreme. Uh, When I said earlier in the message that at times rejection can be far more painful than you ever expected, you're about to see a clear example of what I meant. All right, so pick back up. We'll start reading again in verse uh, 14. It says this, King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. And some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he's Elijah. And others said, he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, who I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. Now, we're going to stop and talk there for just a few minutes, okay? Uh, Mark tells us that as the 12 are out, news about Jesus continued to spread. His name became known. And so naturally, people started to speculate about who he was. Some people thought he was John the Baptist, resurrected from the dead, which obviously tells us these people hadn't heard of Jesus until after John's death, which we'll talk about in a moment. Uh, Other people were saying, no, he's Elijah, right? He's Elijah, one of two men in the Bible who were taken into heaven without dying. Can you imagine that? Like you're just hanging out, minding your own business one day, and all of a sudden it's like sucked into the sky, you're gone. It happened to Elijah and one other guy named Enoch. 
And then other people were saying, well, no, he's just a prophet. He, he's like one of the prophets of old, like Moses, like Elijah, like Elisha. What's interesting here, though, is that Mark stops and he actually highlights the view of one man, King Herod. More specifically, this was Herod Antipas. He was the son of Herod the Great, who some of you may have heard of. If not, Herod the Great historically is known for being an absolute madman. The guy was insane. He murdered his own wife, murdered several of his sons, several of his own relatives. Uh, Biblically, he's known for being the guy who was ruling over Israel at the time of Jesus' birth. He was the guy in Matthew 2 who ordered all the baby boys under two years old in Bethlehem to be put to death because he heard a king had been born. The guy was a little paranoid, if you ask me, right? Well, after crazy Herod the Great died, his son Herod Antipas became the ruler over Galilee where Jesus lived and did ministry. And Herod Antipas thought that Jesus was, in fact, John the Baptist raised from the dead, most likely due to a guilty conscience, because as Mark tells us, he's the guy responsible for killing John the Baptist. Now, this is where I want to paraphrase the rest of the story for us, uh, because I think telling the story, it's going to be more helpful for you than me just reading the rest of the verses. So you guys ready for a story? Yeah, this one, don't worry. It's going to keep you awake. I promise you. All right, so here we go. Uh, One day, Herod Antipas decides that he wants to marry his brother Philip's wife, whose name is Herodias. And if that wasn't awful enough, Herodias was also the daughter of one of his other brothers, which made her his niece. Are you following this dysfunction so far? Yeah? Well, John the Baptist decides he's going to speak out against this. Because according to the Old Testament law, you can find this in Leviticus 18, 16, it's not okay for you to marry your brother's wife. It's wrong. It defies God's plan for marriage and family. Well, Herodias didn't like how outspoken John the Baptist was about her new marriage relationship to her uncle uh, slash brother-in-law. And so she became infuriated and wanted John the Baptist to be put to death. The problem was Herod was scared of John the Baptist because as Mark tells us, he was a holy and righteous man which implies Herod probably operated with a karma-like mentality. You know, he thought, if I do something awful to that really good man, something awful might happen to me. And so to appease his bride and to protect himself, instead of killing John, he threw John in prison, probably in hopes that it would shut him up. Well, fast forward, a short time later, we read that Herod's having a birthday party. And all the important people in Galilee are there. Government officials, military leaders, Galilean celebrities, right? You get the idea. Well, at one point during the party, Herodias' daughter, who would have been Herod's stepdaughter and great-niece, we know from historical accounts that her name was Salome, she comes into the party and she does a dance for her stepdad slash great-uncle and all of his guests. And this dance was not like a tap dance or a line dance. This was like an erotic clothes-coming-off kind of dance. And the Bible says that after she did this dance, Herod and his guests were so pleased at what they saw that stepdad slash great uncle looks at this girl and says, anything you want, I'll give it to you. Just ask me and it's yours. Well, instead of answering in that moment, she runs back to her mom, Herodias, and she says, hey, mom, what should I ask for? And Herodias sees her opportunity. She says, why don't you ask your stepdad to give you the head of John the Baptist on a platter? And so she does. And even though Herod hates the idea of killing John because he's scared of John, he also doesn't want to break his word to her. He doesn't want to disappoint his guests. 
And so he sends an executioner to the prison where John is being kept, and he lops his head off and puts it on a platter and brings it back to the party for Herodias and all the guests to see. And some of you say the Bible's boring. Are you kidding me? Not with those kind of stories in its pages, right? But the question is this. What are we supposed to take from such a sick, horrific, dysfunctional story? Well, the answer is we could talk about several things. Uh, But for the sake of our time together, I want to point out two specific things that directly relate to this idea of rejection that we're covering, all right? If you're taking notes, I'll give you some stuff to write down. Number one, the story reveals to us that some people just hate the truth. They hate it. Even when the truth seems like a no-brainer, you know? Like, hey, uh, you probably shouldn't commit adultery by marrying your brother's wife. You probably shouldn't commit incest by sleeping with your niece. You see, regardless of how common sense the truth may seem at times, some people hate it and don't want to hear it because it directly opposes the desires that live inside of them. And instead of adjusting their desires to the truth, they would rather adjust the truth to fit their desires. The second thing the story reveals is this, and this is where it gets a little tougher, that people who hate the truth will hate you for telling it. The same people who hate the truth are going to hate you for telling it. As I read this story this past week, I just stopped at one point and I thought to myself, this story didn't have to be in our Bibles. Here's what I mean by that. John could have avoided all this. Like he could have avoided being thrown in prison. He could have avoided having his head cut off. All he had to do was keep his mouth shut. And if he would have kept his mouth shut, he could have died peacefully in his old age. Look, in the same way, if you're someone in the room today who's been wondering the whole time I've been preaching, James, is there any way to avoid the kind of rejection you're talking about? Well, the answer is absolutely, yeah. You can totally avoid it. All you have to do is keep your mouth shut. And all you have to do is compromise in your faithfulness to Jesus. And if you'll do those things, you won't ever have to suffer rejection in your entire life. But look up here, if you will, look. If your goal is to follow Jesus faithfully, at some point you will have to speak up and tell the truth. Not to win arguments, mind you. That's not why we share the truth. We share the truth to win people. You see, according to what the Bible teaches, the greatest thing that we can ever do for a person if we truly love them is to share the truth in love. Jesus himself says it in John 8, 32. It's the truth that sets people free. But not everybody sees it that way. Like there are people out there that don't like the truth, that they're sinners. They don't like to hear the truth, that that the way they're living is wrong and opposes God. There are people out there that don't want to hear that they need someone outside of themselves, a savior named Jesus, to rescue them from sin, death, and hell, and to give them all those things they can't give themselves, life, joy, hope, purpose, and freedom. See, the reality is our world is full of people who are desperate to be their own gods and saviors. And when you tell them they can't be, some of them will hate you for it. Listen, I just want to remind you again and say it again because I need you to be crystal clear. I don't want you leaving today going, what did James talk about again? So let me just say it again. You ready? Faithful followers of Jesus will be rejected. If your goal is to faithfully follow after him, rejection is inevitable for you. It may vary in degree and it may vary in kind, but at some point it will come. And as we've seen in John the Baptist's example, sometimes that rejection comes at a high, high cost. 
Now, as we get ready to wrap up our time, let me just go ahead and acknowledge, uh, I understand today's message in many ways has been very hard and very depressing. I actually stood this morning with uh, a bunch of our staff in my office, and we always pray on Sunday mornings together before we do this, and just ask God to move in ways that only he can. And so I said to them this morning, pray for the hearts of people, because they're going to have to put up with about 90% of, of the hard stuff today, and then the last 10% will get to the good stuff. And so as we get ready to wrap up our time, here's what I thought I'd do. I want to give you two things to take away, two truths to remember that should provide hope and encouragement as you leave today and go out into the world on mission, all right? So let me give those things to you. The first thing to remember is this, that as you live on mission, although some people will reject, some will receive. Always remember this. Some people, they're going to reject, but some people will receive. Back in the mid-2000s, when I lived in Miami, Florida, I had a, a job in business sales. And if you've ever worked in sales, you know that you have to work through a whole lot of no's to get to the yeses, right? And if you lose sight of the fact that at some point somebody's going to say yes, those no's can get very, very discouraging. Well, listen, the same is true when it comes to people and the gospel. I just want to be honest. I mean, I've been honest all morning long, so I might as well keep being honest. Look, you go out there and you start sharing the good news of Jesus... There are going to be people out there who are just going to say, no, I don't want it, don't want to hear it, don't want to listen to it, don't want to accept it, don't want to receive it, and they're going to reject you right away. And if you don't expect people to say no, you will become discouraged very, very quickly. But what you have to keep in mind is this, at some point, somebody's going to say yes, because according to the scriptures, and I just love this, the very spirit of God the same spirit that raised Jesus from the grave, the same spirit that lives inside of your body, if in fact you know him, that spirit, he goes before us in the mission Jesus has left us, and he's constantly preparing the hearts of people in the world to receive. And so instead of giving up on the mission out of frustration because you've experienced rejection, I would encourage you, take courage in knowing that receptive people are out there. That the Holy Spirit has already been working before you to get the hearts of people ready for that news you're about to share. You just have to keep pressing past the nose until you find those people. Although some will reject, some will receive. The second thing I would challenge you and encourage you to remember is this. That rejected people are blessed people. That rejected people are blessed people. Now, before you think I've lost my mind, um, let me blame it on Jesus. He's the one that says this, Okay. Look at what he says in Matthew 5, verses 10 through 12. He says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Um, Jesus is not talking to those who are rejected for annoyance' sake. Are you with me? I, I would argue that there are people out there who claim the name of Christ who deserve to be rejected because they take the truth and bully people with it. They take the truth and they beat people up. Like their only goal is to win arguments. They don't love people. They love themselves. Jesus is not talking about those people here. He's talking about a different crew of people, people who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for living a life in the world that looks so much like his that people just can't stand it. He said, for those people, those people, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And then he says this, rejoice and be glad. And I underline this for you. If you write in your Bible, you might want to underline that in the pages. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 
Jesus is simply saying here, look, if you remain faithful to me, and if you remain faithful to this mission that I've left you, in those moments when you are rejected, you are blessed. That word blessed is the Greek word makarios, and it simply means happy, fortunate, or joyful. So why in the world would Jesus say that rejected people are happy, fortunate, and joyful people? Because of what we just read. Because their reward is great in heaven. Rejected people have great rewards in the eternal kingdom of God. This is why Jesus says to us, rejoice and be glad. Like when people beat you up for my sake and talk bad about you and lie to your face and and make things up, rejoice and be glad. Not in the pain you feel in those moments of rejection, but rejoice and be glad in knowing that there's a great reward waiting on you one day because you were rejected from me. You see, when it all comes down to it, this conversation is really about perspective. If you're one of those people in the room who spends most of your time thinking about life here on earth and how you can make this life more comfortable, more enjoyable, more pleasurable, chances are you will do whatever it takes to avoid pain and suffering at all costs, even if it means compromising in your faithfulness to Jesus. On the other hand, if you're one of those people who think about this life and and your mindset is, this place is in my home, I don't belong here. I'm a stranger in this world. I am a pilgrim passing through to get to a better place. And your eyes are constantly set on eternity and what waits on you there. Look, you will suffer anything for the one who suffered the ultimate rejection for you. Maybe you're that person and you've been thinking the whole time, James, what's the motivation? Why do I do this? Because 2,000 years ago, the Savior of the world went to a cross and gave his life up, allowing the very people he created to reject him on your behalf. And I'm here to tell you today, Jesus, because he was rejected for you, it means at times you're going to have to be rejected for him. Because, but it's worth it in the end because one day, one day, the Savior of the world will receive you into his kingdom forever. And I would say that makes rejection worth it. And so as we close, I thought we would just spend some time praying and asking God to help us with that right perspective. So let's just bow our heads, close our eyes all over the room if we can. I'm going to invite our prayer team to come and to get in their places. And as they come, why don't you just start praying for your heart? Just ask the Lord, God, give me that perspective that eternal perspective, that perspective that says, when I am rejected, I am blessed. God, change the way that I think and change the way that I react and the way that I respond and give me courage knowing that there are people out there that need this news and they're going to respond to it when it comes to them. Just ask the Lord to change your perspective right now. Listen, as some of you are praying Some of you might have shown up today without a relationship with Jesus. Like you've actually been rejecting him. The one who was rejected for you, you've been rejecting him. And you've shown up today and you've heard about this Savior who came to the world to rescue you from sin, death, and hell. To give you hope and joy and purpose and freedom and life and eternity with him. And you know today because God has made it clear to you that you need Jesus. That today is the day you you finally stop rejecting him and you receive him. And if that's you, if you're someone who knows without a shadow of a doubt that you need Jesus. And you need all those things that, that you've been unable to give yourself, provide for yourself. 
then I'm going to encourage you right now in this moment, why don't you just say something like this in prayer to him? Just tell him, Jesus, I need you. I'm done rejecting you, and today I want to receive you. And Jesus, I'm asking you to receive me right now as one of your own. Jesus, I believe that you went to the cross and suffered the ultimate rejection for me, laying down your life in my place for my sins so that I could know you and be forgiven and accepted by you. But Jesus, I also believe that you overcame that rejection three days later when you rose from the dead, that you conquered sin, death, and hell on my behalf so that I could know new and eternal life with you. And so Jesus, right now, would you save me? Would you forgive me of all my sins, past, present, and future? Take hold of my life and make me into the person you've created me to be. Jesus, I say yes to you. Look, with heads still bowed and eyes still closed all across the room, I want to ask you to do me a simple favor, if you would. If you just prayed that with me or something like it, would you acknowledge the fact that you made that decision by just lifting a hand? James, that's me. Put my faith in Jesus. Just throw it up high. Our prayer team is going to come to you and put a resource in your hand. As soon as you receive it, you can put it back down. Anybody, James, that's me. Put my faith in Jesus for the first time today. Asked him to receive me as one of his own. Awesome. Listen, for the rest of us, here's what we're going to do. Here's what we're going to do. The band's going to come and lead us in a song, and we're going to continue to pray and respond. We're going to sing, and we're going to cast our hearts and our minds to Jesus. And we're going to continue to ask the Lord in these next few moments to do a work in our life that only he can do so that we can take what we've heard today and actually go live it out. So, Father, as we respond, would you just meet with us? Would you speak to us in undeniable ways? God, would you have your way in our hearts and in our lives? God, do things in us in the next few moments that can only be explained by you. God, we give you this time. Have your way. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand to our feet and respond together.